Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today we have a very special guest. We are joined by Peter Fishman, co-founder at Mozart Data. Fish, how you doing today? Doing great. Great to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Uh, we talked a little bit about your career. You've been in Silicon Valley for some time. You've worked at some of the biggest companies, some of the biggest tech brands out there. I'm so excited to dive in. So let's get into it. You've built your career in analytics, eventually starting Mozart Data. Can you tell us a little bit about the company and how you got into this world in the first place before you opened the company? Sure. I mean, my analytics career really goes back uh, to when I was a little kid. So I've always been into data and math and numbers and trying to see the story that they're telling in the world. Um, that's been true basically throughout my life, but ultimately it became my career. Um, after graduate school, I ended up sort of bouncing around a number of different tech companies, some small, some large, some in the middle, um, mostly doing the same thing, which is gathering up their data and then trying to turn it into something insightful or useful um, the same way that I would in my sort of outside of world uh, life, uh, outside of work life. And uh Ultimately, that became Mozart data. So the data collection techniques, the data consumption techniques, um, and the data tools that I would bring to a lot of different companies, I ultimately decided to turn into a service um, that is today Mozart data. I love that. So listen, I got to ask you, how did this manifest as a child? Like when your mom and dad saw little Pete was like getting excited about numbers or get, can you give me an example of how you first, your parents or maybe your family first started seeing that you were so interested in analytics and numbers? Sure. So uh, when I was uh, like two years old, I started going to uh, the racetrack, the horse racing track. Uh, I, I grew up about, numbers. yeah, exactly. I grew up about five miles from um, a racetrack and quickly sort of became obsessed with the horses, the numbers, the betting, the sort of odds, the data, and and thinking through sort of the math of some of the, uh, you know, concepts from the racetrack. And um, that always got me excited. I mean, there was some sort of uh, atmosphere there that really spoke to me, that sort of uh, lit me up. Um, and I was really close with my grandfather, who was uh, my best friend. And he and I used to go almost once a week to the racetrack together. And it was, uh, you know, probably one of the highlights of my childhood. But um, when you go to the racetrack, uh, there's some folks that like to bet on the horse based on the horse's name or the horse's color or the horse's, you know, you know, maybe the horse pooped right before the race or something like that. Um, I was always somebody that loved to dive into the horse history and the numbers in the history. So the time it took to run the race, the conditions of the race, um, and trying to adjust uh, sort of the race history to make an estimate of the horse's chance of winning. And ultimately, that's what we do in business. We try to understand which of our bets um, has an outsized chance of winning. And we need to you know, focus on that as a company. Um, if it's Mozart data or if it's a customer of ours, we want them focusing on their projects that have the highest chance of winning. Those can be um, advertising or marketing projects. Those can be product projects. Um, those can be sort of customer retention projects. It's anything that, you know, you want to estimate its chances of success and you want to have an advantage in doing so with data. And that's sort of always been a big part of my life. 
I absolutely love that story. That's so fantastic. Two years old, that's absolutely crazy. I'm sure Grandpa was loving that he had this little prodigy that was helping him make money at the track like that. What an amazing, amazing story. I'm so glad you told me that. I want to ask you something, and I'm going to take it a little bit off topic, but still super relevant. I've, I've said recently, men lie, women lie, numbers can lie too, because I'm really into sports. I'm really into analytics when it comes to business. And a lot of times when you're looking at numbers and the wrong numbers, you can tell a lot of different stories depending on how you show the numbers, what type of like duration you show them at, um, cherry picking, so to speak. How do you advise businesses to make sure that they're looking at the right analytics, the right data points, the right insights, so they can make good decisions? Uh, well, that's a long and arduous process, and it is very easy to make misinference. So to take data and draw the wrong conclusion from it. And sometimes you draw the wrong conclusion from it because you have the wrong data. Sometimes you ask the wrong question of the data. Sometimes it's hard to do the calculation. Sometimes you do the calculation, it's right. You've asked the right questions of the data, um, but then it doesn't sustain as an effect. So I think it's really important to have the types of folks that, um, basically can be rigorous in their approach to analyzing the data. Very often, you know, one of my personal takes in this world is people often set up kind of um, cookie cutter insight machines. So, mm. um, you know, you want to know something about your business um, and you want to know that on a regular cadence. So you set up, uh, you know, essentially a report. And, um you know, that is actually effectively what Mozart data sells. It sells the ability to get a report is the easiest way to think about it. But actually often reports um, aren't that valuable um, or they become dated really quickly or they get lost in a sea of other reports. So I think it's very hard, at least today, uh, before this uh, big, huge wave of AI comes, uh, you know, crashing down on us. I think it's very hard to draw really great insights without really great talent at drawing those insights. Um, so I, I don't think you can really divorce the idea of um, great people assessing, analyzing, thinking about the implications, thinking about what's actionable about the data from you know, a company that just sort of wants to use data. If, you, if, if those two things aren't married together, um, you'll often get um, shockingly low value from your data. I love that. So I've talked a lot about the proliferation of people analytics, how that's that that wave is coming and how it's changing the way that we manage our people and human capital in general. Obviously, we've seen it in financial analytics, sales analytics, marketing analytics over the past two decades. And I guess I was just ask, asking for some of my, my own personal uh, advice because we're going through a, a transformation from a, from our, in our company in terms of the way we read our data, the way we leverage our data. And you know what? It always comes down to people, making sure that you have the right talent in place to give you those insights. So I love that answer. You have had an absolutely incredible career journey. So you grew up in Jersey and then you moved to Silicon Valley. You worked at companies like Google, Microsoft, Opendoor, Zenefits, among many others. How did all these experiences, because like you said, you worked big, small, you worked all across the board, insurgents, incumbents, different industries. How did being in all those different environments shape you to be a successful entrepreneur like you are? Well, uh, I'll... I'll wait on the title of successful entrepreneur uh, until <laughs> until that's that's more official than it is today. That said, I'm really you know proud of my own personal entrepreneurial journey. Um, you know, today I run Mozart Data, um, and I founded that company about four years ago with a very close friend um, and a former co-founder from a hot sauce company that he and I started together. Uh, 
a little over 10 years ago. So we've had a few entrepreneurial journeys together, but throughout sort of my career, there's been sort of little entrepreneurial one-offs, which is to say, um, you know, you know, just sort of, there's sort of always that grind or excitement for figuring out something that's missing in the world and figuring out a way that you can both add and capture some value. The way that sort of these uh, companies in the past have like contributed to, you know, uh, Mozart today is that uh, they represent a lot of the questions that we're trying to answer uh, at Mozart. So different companies, different contexts, different sizes, different industries, B2B, B2C, um, all of these things sort of have, have one thing in common, which is often they generated a lot of data. And, um, you know, again, they also, almost all the companies that I worked for had big appetites to try to find something useful in it and, and sort of move the company along. And when Dan and I started the company, myself as mostly a data analyst and Dan mostly as a backend engineer, decided to sort of bring our skills together to do sort of data engineering as a service um, in a product called Mozart Data. Um, you know, the, the commonality uh, was that we had great, what we call founder market fit. We we had done this problem collectively, you know, almost a dozen times, and uh, you know, essentially these these represented real problems that we were solving at these companies that we got to see firsthand in doing it, and that was sort of a cheat code, I think, to moving our business a little bit forward. So I think the the toughest part of starting a business um, is really you know, making something that people want. So there's sort of this YC cliche, make things people want. And um, one of the things that we were able to do was build for myself. So, you know, having built data teams at a number of different companies, but as you mentioned, in a number of different contexts, I really got to see uh, the types of problems and the types of shortcuts these teams needed and where they ran into road bumps. And I thought that you know, there had to be a better way than just constantly reinventing the wheel at every single stop. So at every single stop, you know, we would buy a bunch of um, services, we would hire a bunch of engineers to implement sort of a very similar stack and to sort of avoid some of the pitfalls. And we thought we could productize that. I love that. And so it was just kind of a natural fit because you've been doing this before and you see there's an appetite in the market and you have the expertise and knowledge. And so it just became a no brainer to start Mozart data four years ago. And then well, I, I, I wish it were a no brainer. I think, I think for many people, including myself, that sort of step off the ledge in terms of, of leaving a sort of a cushy or comfortable or job that you know, or job that you're succeeding at is very, very, very difficult. And it was certainly for me. Sure. And you had both been co-founders of Bacon Hot Sauce. Is that correct? That's right, I know yeah. that. And you were the chief Dan, bacon Dan officer. Real, that's right. So Dan and I have been really friends for 25 years. And then uh, before we started the company, and uh, and then we sort of knew each other's strengths as entrepreneurs, having sort of had this great side hustle where we started a bacon flavored hot sauce company. We were the inventors of bacon hot sauce and uh, ran that for uh, 10 years and uh, sold hundreds of thousands of bottles. And it was uh, an incredible experience. Wow. I am going to check that out after this. I love it. Bacon hot sauce. I'll check that out. All right. So I want to talk about your time at Zenefits because I know you went through some extreme growth and then some periods of extreme reduction. When you were there, you went from 300 to 3,000 employees in one year, and then the following year back to 300. Sounds like big whiplash. So what I wanna know is from both a rapid growth rate and then going back down to 300, 
how is the company, so if you have 300, 3,300, how is the company different at the two different endpoints of 300? Like, was there a lot of, did you notice the culture was different? Did you notice that, was there some scar tissue? Was there, we learned some lessons and it makes us better going forward? Kind of what was the feeling between when you started and then two years later when it was back at 300? So, I mean, I think um, very few people have uh, a positive experience with with that type of whiplash. So uh, a lot of times the best companies to join in terms of working with great talent and great people and really sort of expanding your own personal capabilities are, co are companies that are sort of really going up, you know, just up into the right, just have these amazing exponential growth. And though it's sort of hard to remember this, uh, Zenefits was a company uh, that had really explosive growth. And, you know, along that, along with that explosive growth came incredible uh, talent. People flocked to the company, including myself, that I thought were really just incredible colleagues, had a lot of passion, worked around the clock, leveled people up uh, around them maybe in their organization, but like, or department, but also just all around them as you work cross-functionally. So it's really a really amazing experience. You can only scale a, a company to the extent the market demands it. And um, on some level, we had bet into growth that we were really not seeing. And you have sort of one of two paths, you know, kind of, uh, you know, it was described to me as we got sort of the signal from the world that there was an orange light. So some people, you know, if the if the traffic light goes from green to orange, they'll just sort of speed through the light and some people will hit the brakes. And we were somebody that very much accelerated through and sometimes that really doesn't turn out great. So then you have this challenge of, um, uh, you know, I, I think you have this challenge of how do you, and, and a lot of companies face this today because we've transitioned in the past uh, two years from zero interest rates to real interest rates, uh, a funding environment that was as loose and liquid as possible to one that, you know, isn't certainly the tightest in history, but it's it's certainly not a great funding environment at, at different stages. Sure. So, so I think there's this challenge that comes from how do you go from getting people on board and excited and selling a vision of kind of like the, the, the cool part of the roller coaster and then sort of dealing with the realities of this is what the new market is telling us. And most companies, as they transition from, you know, zero interest rate, all party all the time to let's be prudent, really massively struggle with this. Obviously, Zenefits is, is an example of a company that deeply struggled with that. Um, uh, you know, but I think like now a lot of companies are, are, are going through that, you know, I think just sort of everybody sort of in the cohort of, you know, having raised money in the sort of, uh, of the boom of COVID, um, has, has now got to sort of take, a take an assessment and say, okay, where does it make sense for our company to invest? And I think the most important thing in that whiplash experience is to be, a ruthless prioritizer. So I think the experience of sort of sustaining the culture, I think you have to sort of throw that out. You can't sustain the culture. 
The culture is great when it's a party. It's easy for it to be great when it's a party. Um, you have to say, these are the things that matter most to the people that are in the building. And um, this is what inspires them. And if it's the right thing that inspires them, um, you're able to really work on the subset of projects that you identify as the highest leverage. Yeah, listen, it's it's a you know, classic founder's dilemma. And we saw a lot of it to your point at the beginning of COVID, right? When everybody was in their house and we were using Zoom and we were getting things delivered to us and we were using our social media more often, right? Now you saw these bangs, these big tech companies and even mid-sized tech companies that were made during these times, scale, 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 grow, 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 right? It's not as if maybe maybe they thought that it was gonna be this way forever and this is the new way forward. I certainly heard a lot of those takes in 2020, 2021, but the reality is that you have to meet the demand. And then eventually when that demand subsides, you're faced with the reality of understanding this is what the new normal looks like. And then you said to your point, you have to prioritize. And listen, you're in the valley, right? There has been many success success cases of heavily investing when you're when you're hitting the market at the right time and then just achieving that rapid growth and getting investment at the time. But then there's way 10 times more stories of doing that and, and going out in front a little bit too quickly and then having to overcorrect. And I think what the thing is, you try to do the things in the best interest of your company, in the best interest of your employees. But at the end of the day, you have to make the decisions for the Republic as the founder. And sometimes that means dealing with that whiplash. And to your point, it's an absolute misnomer to think that you can keep the culture the same from 300 to 3,000 to 300. That's just not possible. But at the end of the day, you want to keep the company and you want to survive and you want to move forward. Because at the end of the day, what we know in tech, what we know as being an entrepreneur is you got to stay in the fight. And sometimes that means having to take your medicine and do things that are hard and disappointing to a lot of people. And you're right. We're dealing in a literally, kind of legitimately a zero interest environment to what we're dealing with now for all these companies that got all this funding over the last two or three years. Unfortunately, now we're seeing that you know, overinflated or we're in a different reality and people are having to adjust. And that leads to a lot more hard decisions. And those are probably not going away anytime soon. So those are things that we all adjust with. And so you look at it from the outside and you see TV you know, stories on Apple TV or Netflix about how this grows and how these things. But at the end of the day, people are trying their best, I think, to meet the demand where they can. And then unfortunately, sometimes there's decisions that come back. So you got that experience. You saw that. I bet that is informed. I bet you have some level of PTSD from that. And that's informed a little bit of how you probably tried to grow your own company and some of the decisions you make on your way up. Is that a fair assessment? Sure. I mean, I would say that people's experiences deeply shape uh, who they are. Certainly it is for me. And um, kind of like you said, when you when you watch sort of uh, the streaming services, you see only two stories, the like wild success, you know, they were in a dorm room. And the next thing you know, you know, they've, you know, changed the world and they're, you know, everybody's uh, off owning a private island. And then, you know, the flip is uh, they, you know, they had that trajectory and then they did something sort of bad and wrong. And then suddenly everything blew up in their faces. So you see protagonist, like, antagonist, hero, villain, yeah. anti-hero. It's all the same, right? And it's you all see only those two stories. There. In reality, most companies fall somewhere in the middle. So sure. they experience both of those pieces, which is. Um, the opportunity to, you know, have breakaway success, maybe in a much smaller scale and form, not that many get to do that, you know, kind of at the the macro level that, that you know, you've kind of with some household names. Um, but, but also, uh, folks have the same types of challenges that some of those big, you know, sort of failed companies that we think of, like, you know, WeWork or Theranos or any of those, and they have to, they have to make sort of really critical business decisions, uh, you know, hopefully with a, a better moral compass. But like, um, you know, I think that, that 
the sort of decisions and sort of the experiences lived by those entrepreneurs that get depicted feel right. However, most companies don't look in, in, in any way like those. I think you're spot on with that. So you went from Jersey, as you mentioned early in your youth, to Silicon Valley, where you at home right away when you moved to Silicon Valley. Was there like a big cultural adjustment and shock for you? Or was that something that was pretty seamless in terms of the change? Well, so I, I did get to sort of uh, adapt to California by, you know, going to school. So already you sort of have this built-in community. Um, for me, it was my, you know, colleagues in graduate school who were also sort of struggling through a PhD. Um, I I will say it immediately did feel like home. Um, there's something about the culture, the pace, um, the sort of way that things get prioritized, the appreciation for um the beauty of the bay and and everything it has to offer that really you know spoke to me and ultimately there's this thing in the bay area called four year fever which is like once you've lived here for four years uh, you really don't want to leave maybe it's you're too soft to go anywhere else um, but I was somebody that having you know spent six years in graduate school uh, really loved the bay area and when you want to stay in the bay area typically that means that you're going to get a job in tech I love that. And listen, I say this all the time. I'm from the West Coast. I grew up in Southern California. I went to school in Arizona before moving out to Florida. I say that the only city that's really cultured on the West Coast is San Francisco in terms of all the different things and all the different uh, types of opera, play, culture, sports, like food. Like it's 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 not it's like that a lot on the East Coast and even in the Midwest. You don't see as much of it on the West Coast. And so that's something I really value about the Bay. I think the other side of it is that ultimately I was I spent some time in San Francisco myself. Even recently I was there. I think we met there. And I do love the feeling of what are you doing to change the world or what are you doing for work? What what are you doing that's contributing? And, and maybe it's because I was in that Silicon Valley area. I was in that Saster of, uh, environment. But quite frankly, like that's what everybody wanted to talk about. They want to talk about the impact they're making. You meet some of the most interesting people who have had some of the most interesting journeys and stories professionally than you can find in any other metropolitan area. So I find that to be super fascinating. And, and it's you're right. Going there and going to school there and building in that community makes it a little bit more seamless in terms of what you step into it. What's something about Silicon Silicon Valley that for those that just, you know, see the TV shows or read about it in magazines that might shock us? What's something you can reveal behind the curtain about Silicon Valley that if you're not local, you might not know? So, I mean, the, the first thing is it feels very small. So, uh, you know, on some level, you know, people think, um, you know, oh, my God, there's these, you know, big, tall buildings where people go squirrel away and, you know, change the world or invent some key piece of technology that used that's used by billions. Um, in, in practice, it, it feels very small to me. So very often someone will say, hey, are you familiar with this data tool or this data leader at, at company X? I said, yeah, you know, I was on the speaking circuit with this person or I was, you know, doing graduate school at the same time or I was, uh, you know, I, I was one of the first users of their product. Um, and that's not uncommon. Um, so I think um, one of the things is it feels small. And the other thing that I I do think of as true that that most people don't, uh, you know, maybe don't imagine or um, or maybe see or experience elsewhere is that um, careers are a little bit shorter. So mm. um, so at, at individual stops. So, you know, you mentioned some of my sort of professional background. Um, 
you know, I, I've been at Mozart for um, about three and a half years and actually, actually the longest tenure that I've had at any company, any singular. Oh, wow. company. So um, uh, it might speak to me or it might speak to the nature of there's a lot of uh, opportunity. So one of one of the jobs that I got um, in, you know, in the past, you know, 15 years, I it was just two floors below where I had been working. So mm. I was working in a small building and, you know, I like I say I got off at the wrong floor and then just basically never left. So um, I think that uh, one of the best parts of Silicon Valley is that there's so much opportunity sort of around the bend. And for a career to be successful, you have to find sort of not just sort of the right company, but the right company at the right time with the right opportunity. And those things are really hard to suss out. Um you know, on a job description. Um, and similarly, that the right talent for you to hire is sometimes hard to suss out um, in an interview. But if sort of you're moving around or finding new opportunities, it gives you a lot of chances to level up. It gives you a lot of chances to stretch yourself. It gives you a lot of chances to apply sort of the knowledge that you've learned in one context to another, even if the context of the business is very different. The context of the business question tends to be, um, very transferable. Yeah, I love that. And you're right. I mean, that's not just a you thing. I see that because there is so much opportunity. There are so many Bergen and companies. There are so many great ideas. And like you said, I think that community is a much more tight knit than people realize for such a big metropolitan city and area. My question for you would be, was there a thread that maybe compelled you for the different roles? I mean, obviously, everybody wants compensation, maybe a bigger title scope, things like that. But did you find that maybe like a new exciting challenge or a leader or the idea was something that really resonated with you? What kind of compelled you as you looked at these different opportunities and took new steps in your career? Well, in all seriousness, I was actually sort of working my way down the ladder. So most people, you know, they work their way sort of up the ladder. I like to say I was working my way down the ladder. So working at a big you know, 100,000 person company, then a thousand person company, then a hundred person mm. company, then a 10 person company, then a one person company. Um, and I think like, that's really where you can, you know, I, I think it's sort of the opposite of what's intuitive. So typically, you know, if you work at a hundred thousand person company, you know, I worked at a 200,000 person company, Microsoft, and, you know, there, the product that I work on would touch, you know, a billion people. And there's a real power to that. It's really exciting. You you get to really have a direct impact, even if you just change things a little, little bit because it's touching mm -hmm. a billion people. Um, but it's it's easy to have, you know, sort of an impact, you know, uh, when you're working at a large, you know, institution like that because they've put in place things to have you drive an impact. There was a cadence by which we were, reviewed, there were products, you know, project cycles and product cycles where kind of there was a known deliverable and we would agree up front to what we would be producing. Um, as you move sort of down, your ability to have an impact with a tiny change massively decreases. So you mm -hmm. have to really sort of up-level yourself to find ways to not have a small change, but actually to have, you know, a really meaningful and large change. So I, I always sort of worked my way sort of down the ladder to you know, where I am today. Yeah, let me ask a question, because this is something that's been a long held belief of mine, but maybe it's different in, in, in Silicon Valley or in the West Coast in general. I've always felt like that the biggest transition you can make in your career is not necessarily, you know, industry to industry. I think people can do that pretty easily or even function to function. I've seen people go from like marketing to technology or uh, finance to operations, whatever it may be. I've always felt like enterprise 
right? How you get things done there. And maybe it's at a certain level. Maybe it's at a certain level of seniority versus what you have to do in a startup and how you get things done there. It's almost a complete 180 in terms of the way you get things done. Not better or worse, just different. Have you found that? Or, or I got to imagine there's tons of examples of people coming from these 100,000, 200,000 companies though to do their own startups. It's just that that's been my experience from what I've seen in my community here in South Florida and throughout the Northeast. What do you think about that? Uh, 100% agree with that statement. I've always sort of characterized people as sort of like big company people or small small company people. Um, okay. I sort of self-identify as a small company person, though I've worked at large companies and had, you know, uh, success at those places. Um, I always sort of saw myself as a small company person in the sense of I like sort of driving that unique impact. Um, now, some of the people that are able to drive uh, change and affect change uh, at an enterprise or sort of be able to um, really execute at the highest of high levels, like, you know, a couple standard deviations to the right. That's an incredible skill set. Um, but there is a problem that you have working at enterprises, which is to say um, you're almost always on a winning team. Even mm -hmm. when you're losing, you're still kind of on a winning team. Um, you know, I've, I've worked sort of at large enterprises um, that were, you know, at that point, very, very successful. And my ability to change their overall, you know, number was was obviously very small. Um, no matter what, we'd be winning. And that would be a function of not just my work, but maybe the work, you know, that someone was doing halfway across the globe and, you know, driving sort of an existing business. Um when you're winning all the time, you don't have the lows and the trough of of losing. Whereas when you're working at a startup or even your own company, um, you're losing almost every day, every day, multiple times a day. <laughs> and on rare occasions, you find a win. Um, and as you transition from the win, 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 lose to the lose, 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 win, I think that is probably the most difficult career challenge. And some people are great at playing on winning teams. They win extra extra hard. They're really good, you know, they can sort of play along with that and they can fit right in and they don't detract from what's happening. They don't, you know, derail the winning, they enhance and speed up the winning and that's an incredible skill. But I think sort of, as you mentioned, like startups and sort of, and, and you know, or even a seed or a pre-seed company, there you're losing all the time and occasionally winning. And I think that that mentality is also a special one to have. Oh man, I love that frame. I'm definitely gonna use that going forward. That's good stuff. All right, listen, this is a hiring podcast. So we gotta ask some hiring questions. You've done tons of hiring throughout your career, including at your own company now at Mozart Data. Let's start here. In one sentence or less, can you tell me your overall interviewing hiring philosophy for people that you wanna bring into your organization? Sure. I'm always hiring, you know, for, for day 91, not day one. Ooh, so I, I think the, I think one of the things that uh, companies have to decide is, is there an opening that needs to get filled? And do I need that? You know, is that need immediate or can I like really expect this person to have sort of a long career with us? Even if that career is a year or two years or five years, um, can I really sort of bank on that sort of extended career um, as opposed to really scratching an immediate itch? 
Oof, I think that's so smart. And I think we talk about the one-year anniversary here at MSH to kind of determine a successful hire. And that's because like, if you're just hiring for somebody that is gonna start and take the job, then you're not gonna have much success, right? And so I love the day 91 attitude. It's you wanna figure out who's gonna be there, who's gonna be there long-term, who's gonna be a good fit for your company. And I think looking at it from that perspective is a completely different perspective than how do we get to this interview and get somebody in the door, which I think is a mistake that a lot of companies make. I think that's really smart on your part. If I ask you for a memorable interview, right? Maybe it's one that you were interviewing or you were interviewing somebody, good, bad, doesn't matter. You have to name names. What comes to mind when I ask you that? So um, immediately what comes to mind is is actually the first person I really ever hired at Yammer. Um, so I'll, I'll call him out by name. Um, he's still a friend of mine. So his name is Otis Anderson. And um, Otis had a pretty good interview going. And then I asked him to... Uh, you know, basically what he likes to do for fun. And he was a, a baseball statistician sort of on the side, in addition to Ooh. being an actual statistician. Uh, but, you know, he had this sort of side passion for baseball and he was able to explain baseball defensive metrics to me in a way that nobody had ever sort of crisply and cleanly understood it, uh, like er, able to explain it to me. And, and I thought that that was just such a, like an incredible example that this person could take some, some concept that was so difficult um, and sort of boil it down in a way and kind of, he didn't do it actually in a very eloquent way. He did it more in a, you know, and I'll, and I'll call this out on a, you know, a shrug meets sort of like explaining with his hands meets um, really able to um, sort of get across the, the most important uh, concepts. I think like that was a great signal to me that he would be good at doing that in the sort of, uh, enterprise context uh, we needed him to. Yeah, the most intelligent people I know are the ones that can take something extremely complex or something I don't understand at all and simplify it in a way that's easy to digest and understand. Those are some of the best leaders I know too. I just got to ask, I mean, this has got to be around Moneyball time. Were you worried about losing him to the Oakland A's at any point or you felt pretty good that you had him locked in there at Yammer? Uh, he had a very small uh, beat writer gig uh, for ESPN on uh, writing about the Giants. So uh, it was actually like pretty convenient because uh, we were across the street from where the Giants played. So he got to sort of uh, go to a few games and simultaneously uh, work with us. So that was that was never really a threat. But uh, he, he certainly got to enjoy more than his fair share of baseball games. Yeah, I'm loath to do this because I'm an Arizona fan. So they're in our division. But man, that is one of the nicest stadiums I've ever been to. Seen a ball hit out in the McCovey Cove, the statues. I don't know if it's called Pac-12 Park anymore, but man, I love that stadium. That's awesome. Um, do you have a favorite question that you like to ask in interviews? So it's that question, which is basically I ask people, and I learned that from this particular interview, which is, what do you like to do for fun? And, you know, that's a throwaway question at the end, but then I ask them to maybe explain something deep about that. So maybe somebody says photography. Well, I'm like, well, explain to me what makes for a good photo. And some people, you know, say composition or something land or you know rules of thirds and i actually i don't know anything about photography but the folks that can really explain you know things about lighting or aperture or things about you know about photography that i don't know that are really sort of um uh subtle i think kind of like you said uh that really poses a great signal that if i get you inspired about the work that we're doing or embarking on or the business that we're trying to transform or the number of people's lives we're going to touch. If I can get you as inspired about that as about sort of the San Francisco Giants or about, you know, basically taking a great photograph 
um, then I'm going to get something really special out of you. And I think it's a it's a great signal. And that said, I also do like to ask challenging technical problems and try to you know understand your sort of technical aptitude um, in an interview. But I always find that uh, a really great signal, conditional on sort of meeting a technical bar, tends to be just you know, how much depth you have about the things you're passionate about. So I love that because I agree with you. It's like one of the things that I look for is can we create a spark in you, right? Because at the end of the day, I feel like my job as a leader and as a manager is I, it's not your job to come here and be passionate about what we're doing. It's my job to create an environment where you feel that spark. But I have to know that you can have that spark. So to your point, if they're talking about something they enjoy and you can, they're just exuding the energy about it and the excitement about it, that's a sign to me that I can maybe get that out of you if it's around our purpose and what we're doing and what we're pursuing. I want passionate people. So I think that's amazing. And to your point, if they can articulate it in a way that's very subtle and nuanced, that also tells you how they are explaining, training, coaching, managing. So I think that's a really, really good thing. Um, what about questions people ask you? What do you like? And you know, we get to the end of the interview and it's like, well, what questions do you have for me? What do you like to hear? What stands out to you? Is there maybe one that stands out to you that was a really great question that somebody asked you? What do you want to hear from a candidate in terms of their interest or what they want to know about you and your company? You know, I think um, one of our you know, company values is to be a little bit customer centric. Um, so I think it's really asking about use cases and, you know, how it's impacted customers and um, what you see from the customers. I mean, I, I like to joke that my co-founder, Dan, knows one way of developing, which is to say he talks to customers and then he understands their problems and then he implements solutions to their problems. So that's that sort of is a variant of a sort of YC trope, but it's also kind of how Dan likes to do product development. And you're sort of on, on that same mentality and same thinking. That is not to say that your customers provide your product roadmap, but your customers do provide the problems that they value the most in a way that like you're typically not able to intuit. Yes, a real product genius can intuit it, but it helps to hear it directly from the horse's mouth. And um, I think somebody that by default is customer centric is going to be more likely to succeed um, at, at, say, our company or actually at many companies. I love that. Let me ask you this, because we know that, you know, we talk about the war on talent, right? But there's definitely in Silicon Valley, there is definitely you want to get the best talent. And there's a lot of different options out there, like we talked about. Is there anything unique that you do from a candidate experience perspective or how you create a realistic job preview, what it might be like to work for you or work at your company that helps you attract great talent? So... Uh, a, a couple of things, you know, one, we, I think, uh, pay competitively um, the, with a bias towards sort of equity ownership. Um, uh, two, I think we have a great sort of candidate experience. Candidates care about like speed and decisiveness. Um, yeah. I think a candidate experience is not like, hey, did you come in and, and get like served coffee the second that, you know, you sort of walked in the door? A great candidate experience is you went in you had a thoughtful and fair interview and um, a decision was made right or wrong, but was made quickly um, and was made with some sort of uh, framework or rationale. So um, so we do sort of prioritize sort of the table stakes things. So, you know, having, you know, I think as a startup, especially, you know, we can get the decision makers in a room uh, in, you know, 30 minutes after the interview ends. So uh, I think I think it is the case that, um, 
you know, I, I think you want to run a, a good candidate uh, process sort of as a, as table stakes. And, and the smaller you are, the, the, the sort of the fewer the excuses are to not do that. Um, the things that uh, we personally value, um, we have a value that we call employees first, um, which is to say a lot of times, you know, um, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, the customer is always right. Or we're trying to make money for, uh, you know, the shareholders, uh, many of whom are actual employees. Uh, you know, I think like those are approaches, but we often find that when you do treat your employees right, um, you know, they, they're more passionate about the mission. Uh, they, they don't have to think about, Hey, is the you know company trying to do right or wrong by me? They're focused on the mission and the product that they need to build. And that trickles into the customer experience that trickles into the returns for the investors. So we really do try to prioritize sort of employees, um, what that looks like in practice. It's an, it's a fine, like little, it's a fine little tagline. It's a nice little like sign to, to have. And, you know, as we try to recruit somebody, um, but it looks like a variety of little small things. So, you know, it might mean like subtle things that people aren't thinking about, like good benefits. You know, maybe it's uh, having a 401k earlier in a company's life cycle than makes sense. Um, or, you know, having good healthcare coverage or you name it. But the thing that like I really valued uh, was we have really good sort of um, stock option default settings. So with it, you know, when you get a stock grant, um, there's a lot of sort of things that are, you know, mostly obfuscated or, or, or very much not understood by the employee receiving it. We like to invest some time in the employee understanding their offer and understanding the value of a huge component of their offer. But not only that, we want to have like default settings, like post-termination exercise periods that are very pro-employee because we think that that's going to make them essentially less preoccupied with distractions in the long run and ultimately serves me, the founder, as well as sort of our investors. Fish, I really love that. It's, you know, I have a lot of friends who are executives who've gone to work at startups and done different things. And one of the things that's really tough, we actually talked about like as a service, like contractual review, legal review for some of our executive relationships and how we kind of help them with their personal brand and do all these different things so that we can add value not just to our customers but also the individuals that we're working with and being a sponsor for them as they pursue their career and one of the things that i've talked to with quite a few are when you're going into that negotiation space right it's a little bit of a sensitive time because you want the role right if you're moving towards the role you're moving towards you don't want to come across as not amenable and a lot of times some people will focus more on like the base salary and the bonus without fully understanding restricted stock units or phantom stock or whatever it is equity however it may be doled out and so and i think companies take advantage of that quite frankly and so i love that you're out in front you spend the time on that you take that out of their head because what you want is people to be coming and have their do their best work and be most productive and i know for a fact in talking to candidates it's a concern to worry, but one that they deprioritize when they're getting close to an offer because you want to start off on the right foot. And I think it's just really important that a company takes the proactive approach to say, no, 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 you're going to start off on the right foot. We want to explain everything and have you understand it. And by the way, we pay super competitively too. I think that probably helps you get really great talent. So I love, love, love that. Let me ask you this. We all miss from time to time when it comes to hiring. You know, you've hired a lot throughout your career. When you miss on somebody, is there a common thread that you can point to or maybe something you're like, dang it, I wish I would have done this differently that you can that you can point to? Well, you know, I've 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 had sort of the matrix of what you know, as me a statistician, we call 
type one errors, type two errors, uh, and then sort of, uh, I feel like valid assessments. So, um, you know, I would say that uh, in general, I do follow folks, especially folks that were close in our process. Um, and some of them have gone on to great careers and I've lamented sort of missing out on the opportunity to work with them um, or lamented missing them in a stretch of my career that would have they would have been obviously very impactful at. Um, that said, I've also hired people off of near misses. So folks that came back, you know, half a year, year later, and, you know, we were in a different uh, shape as a company and, you know, they were in a different space in their career and had the chance to work with them a second time, uh, even though the first time didn't pan out. And, you know, they were many times they were great. I mean, that was some of my best hires uh, were initial sort of misses. And by the way, that's also happened to me in my career. I've had folks pass on me and then offer me a job. I've had uh, folks that I was going to you know, uh, have report to me than I reported to, or uh, I've had folks, you know, kind of go in a, all, all sorts of different directions in their career. So uh, sort of going back to an earlier answer, the Valley is crazy small. Um, and the Valley means, doesn't mean, you know, located within, you know, 10 miles from where I'm sitting in San Francisco. It really means all the companies, especially now in a sort of, we I work at Mozart, we're remote first. So um, with remote work, the Valley really means folk, uh, you know, companies with this sort of growth mentality, both in terms of the growth of their, you know, usage or key metrics, but also the growth of the people in that organization and and uh, the skills and talent. So, um, so I, I would say like the commonality of the pattern would be I generally have hired um, junior with high aptitude, and that might be somebody that's experienced, or it might be somebody that has. Um, you know, but I'm, I'm I'm often trying to hire somebody into a stretch job for them. Um, when they succeed, um, that is a huge reward to me. That's a huge reward to the company. Um, when they when they fail, it tends to be the most easy to sort of recognize in in short order and then adjust to accordingly. So I will say that um, you know, often I think the pattern is like they really are too junior or, you know, and that doesn't mean like entry level. It means too junior, you know, if you're hiring an executive, that might be a person that's had incredible off the chart success as an IC, but maybe you're not willing to hire them in as a manager or as a manager of managers or as an executive, um, which would make a ton of sense, even if they seem to have the leadership aptitude. So generally where I do miss, and I, and I, I think I under index on this to begin with is to to undervalue uh, the experience and then sort of be still a little bit cautious. I do think you have to be very certain in your hiring. You have to be, you know, not just like, um, you know, we're 51% confident um, because that's really not the degree you need to be in order to really make a hire because there's sort of asymmetries of uh, a bad hire can be incredibly expensive. So you really do want to be very confident. So typically the misses are, well, I could see this working, but I don't quite have enough confidence. And maybe after sort of revisiting it after, you know, some sort of heightened experience, maybe I have uh, increased confidence. I love that. Jackie, did you hear that? Certainty in hiring? That's important. That sounds like something we say here at the old MSAJN. I love that. I'm going to ask you this, Fish, and then we'll drop the hiring questions. Is there any technology you use to help you hire? Are you like scribbling down notes? Are you using an Excel or an Airtable? Do you have a, an ATS that you work with? What's the technology you leverage to help you hire better? 
Sure. Our current ATS stack is is Google Sheets. So okay. um, we're not sort of uh, we're not sort of mind blowing in 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 technology there. That said, um, you know, one of the technology, you know, I don't I, I, I don't want to shill too hard, but one of the technologies that we do use is Mozart data. So we do have the ability to bring data from our G Sheets or even ATS services into our central warehouse and can track that. In fact, sort of going back in time, um, the period where I hired the most folks was at Microsoft. And there we were sort of uh, very loosely, you know, essentially doing some of the rudimentary uh, candidate analysis that we see today as being way, way, way more prevalent. But this was you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, um, you know, we were able, I think the things that were really important were to identify kind of um, interviewer, uh, at least score bias. That was, that was one of the things that, you know, we had, we had a lot of folks who, and, and, you know, part of this is cultural, part of this is their personalities, but some folks, um, they could meet the greatest candidate in the world. They'd be like, yeah, just above average. And some folks they could meet, you know, an average candidate be like, ah, the greatest person in the world. So I think, but, but there was typically a consistency, um, in those folks sort of bias of their report. So it wasn't sort of random and haphazard. There would be, you know, some set that would always say, Yes. And then there were, you know, and there were different degrees of yes. You know, we we generally operate on a on a on a one to four scale, you know, and, uh, you know, and uh, I think that's become a a pretty prevalent one. But like some people, you know, their range was three point eight to four point oh. And some people their range, you know, was one point nine to two point one. So I think you had to sort of uh, very much. And then some people had much more regular distributions. But um, I think you have to sort of adjust for the interviewer. And, you know, that to me is like sort of a data problem that I find to be pretty fun. That said, um, I also know that there's a lot of research out there that shows that a lot of data points on evaluation of a candidate don't provide much marginal value, that a handful of data points provide a lot of value. But then as you sort of expand that set, it actually doesn't provide much marginal value. So I think it's really important to understand where is this interviewer on the distribution of like, you know, how do they, how do they bias? How do their scores skew? Yeah, I know you said, you know, I'm going to show a little bit. Let me show a little bit too. You know, I totally agree with you. I think what's really important is that not all feedback is considered the same depending on the source. Are you able to evaluate the different people that you consistently have interviewing, whether they be on your team or other stakeholders that are involved in the job? How do you understand their biases, conscious and unconscious, how they typically rate things? And how do you factor that in? And I think the other thing you said is, I agree. We over, we've, we've, hired over 10,000 people for Fortune 500 companies, high growth startups, and everything in between. And so you kind of learn what are the factors that ultimately lead to a successful hire one, two, three years later. And so you got to make sure. So that's something that we're, we've been talking a lot about from a software perspective, because you're right. It's not all created equal, depending on the person who's doing the interviewing. And not all data points should be weighted the same in terms of certainty in hiring. So I think you I've absolutely cut that out. It does not shock me because you're so deep into the analytics and data space that you'd be looking at it from a much more intellectual way. So I'd love to hear that. All right, let's go in a little bit of a different direction, Fish. What are you working on right now that you're super juiced about? Well, I mean, I, I'm working nonstop on on two things. So uh, recently just got married. So I worked incessantly on my wedding for uh, six months. And by that, I mean, my my wife did. Uh, but I was there kind of. Every- did you wait? Hold on. You got The husband has to pick one thing. Did you pick one thing? Anything? I, you know, there's the classic cliche of yes, yes, no. Yeah. And I made a slight edit to it, which is you do yes, 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 no. 
so uh, so uh, okay so that's that has obviously taken up a huge chunk of uh, my time and of course the other one that I'm working on nonstop is Mozart data. Let me tell you the, the, the types of projects that were currently really top of mind to us that we're obsessed with. So um, the first is basically like every cliche, like finding a way for AI to be part of the product. So rather than sort of shoehorn it in, like in a, an authentic way, um, one of the things that we found is getting people to start to use data and data infrastructure is like, great it's like addictive it's people start scaling you know uh you know it's sort of like exercise not that i'm an expert but go you get into it and you get into it more and you get into it more but you need to really break the break the ice on it people say like doing saunas is sort of the way to get them actually sort of exercising uh because you can get them going easily so for us you know sort of some sort of icebreaker to doing data analysis is that we've been working on something that we call Wolfgang, which is basically an AI for writing SQL queries, um, but it fits really directly into our product. So we're not sort of pivoting our product because AI exists into, oh, we're going to find you the optimal flight to get, you know, from San Francisco to Lisbon using, you know, AI. No, our, our product is really about getting people to go from raw data to an insight. And the part that's the most challenging technically, uh, we want to sort of, help fill the gaps in. The other things that I think I'm very excited about is um, we found some of our, you know, best success is with these real technical operators. So folks that are really data savvy, they have roles that are not data engineer or analytics engineer or even data scientist or data analyst, but they're really savvy about the business, the business context. They understand what levers can be pulled and they understand how data directly speaks to that. Um, so we develop tools that not just onboard these folks, but you know that we think of as actually part of their day-to-day -day working. Um, we want to unblock them from moving quickly, from doing data best practices. Um, that's been sort of forever the theme insofar as it was kind of our first few customers, and that's kind of where we've landed as a company. But it's really an increased focus on that group, these technical operators. And while there are many, many, many more less technical operators, we think that there's just this um, real growing set of people that are very data savvy, very spreadsheet savvy, but they're just waiting on that capability to bring data from more places and sources and automate a number of steps so that they can just move themselves faster along. And actually, what's really inspiring, a number of them have really up-leveled their own careers in doing so. So we really build, you know, the types of tools that get me excited are, are ones that actually sort of speed up their work. DIY data. Who knew? Wow, that is amazing. I love it. So I heard Mozart data. Wolfgang is the AI. Tell me you got a conference room named Amadeus, please. Like that's got to be linked in here somewhere, right? No? So it is the case that like our generic helpline is Amadeus at MozartData.com. Uh, but yes, we, we have a lot of bad puns. So, you know, we wanted to start a data orchestration company. So uh, we then came up with the name Mozart data. And uh you know i i will say like you know compose the tables like we we literally had you know done a variety so i i, I we were fully geeking out of that you know my full brag is dan and i had very different ideas for what we wanted to name the company but my name won out so i have 
forever really been enforcing the sort of cheesy puns and sort of and and you know our, our pricing packages are of course named for like different lengths of 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 song and you know we've just sort of never sort of gotten away i'd say it's i'd say it's cute but it's more sort of dorky is kind of how i would i like it i'm into it and it keeps it it keeps it resonating in the head it keeps the memory and then what dan probably chose the name bacon hot sauce right i mean that was super inventive right no i i i think i think it actually may have been Dan. Um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty like direct name. It's like, well, what did, what do we yeah, want what to is it? this? And then what did bacon hot sauce do? I have no idea. Huh. Yeah, exactly. All right. Last question. If you had one bit of career advice that you would offer 20 year old fish, or maybe for any of our young early in career listeners that you don't, didn't know them, but you know now, what would it be? I mean, I think the thing that I, if I could go back in time and, and see the 20 year old version of me, I, I would say a couple things. One, um, you know, it's going to, it's going to be okay. So it's going to work out. Uh, I think the biggest challenges for me were times in my career where I had a trough, whether that was, you know, leaving grad school and really couldn't find sort of, uh, you know, the right starting footing or, or whatever. Um, so I, if I had just known kind of, it was going to work out, I think I, I would have been able to fight through some of those times, which were a little bit challenging. I mean, I think, uh, I, you know, I think you mentioned a few very successful points in my career and, you know, in, in hindsight, I'm like, I look back on it. I was like, well, of course I was destined to be very successful in practice. There were a lot of times where I was very insecure about where I was professionally, et cetera. And I would like to go back and tell myself that that's not a great piece of career advice. Insofar so far as like, it's hard to hear that kind of in the moment. Um, the thing that I would sort of stress is it is more about the learning than about the credential. So, you know, I, you know, I have a, a PhD that took me six years to earn, um, and it's a great credential, and I learned a lot of things in that process, um, but very few of them come in day to day into my work. Um, and I think too often people, especially uh, overachievers, strive for the credential um, as opposed to the capability. So, um, you know, that, that could be of the form of taking an easy class in college, as opposed to the class where you're going to learn the most and stretch yourself the most. Um, so I, I will say that I, I think the, the biggest piece of career advice that I would give anyone is really strive. you know, again, it's, it's hard to say that, but it's, it's really strive to learn and expand because that, that will ultimately serve you. Um, the other thing is just sort of lean into some of your strengths, um, for me, that was always uh, data and analytics, and that's where I've had the most success in my career as opposed to sort of venturing out into marketing or doing whatever. It's really leaning into the things that I love doing. I love that. I think that is absolute advice. Listen, we are a pro-university podcaster, but I'm going to be honest with you. Nothing beats learning experience. Nothing beats taking on things in a work environment. That's the things that really apply to you in your career. So there's tons of great things to take away from school, but experience very few things beat that. I think that's incredible advice, Fish. Everything you said, I'm really appreciative of you joining us. Thank you for coming on the show, and we hope to see you again real soon. Great to be here. All right, Fish. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.